This is Chip and Durham. Erica in Edmonton. And Shannon in Durham. And you're listening to the Audio Guide to Babylon 5, Episode 91, The Very, 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 Um, Long Night of Londo Malari. That wouldn't fit on a DVD listing. I'm, I'm pretty sure that it would, because they got rid of the quotation marks around the titles, so that gives them some extra space to play with. Mm-hmm. The Very Long Night of Londo Malari. It is a script name that was hijacked from a previously discarded script called The Very Long Night of Susan Ivanova. Had nothing to do with this one, never was seen again, but JMS figured he had the name lying around and he took it. Hey, it's a name that actually has some very direct significance, so I am not going to complain. Ha! <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, very. Uh, it is a very literal name, which is a, which is a strange thing for Babylon 5. Londo Malari's come to Jesus moment, really. And <laughs> I don't think we would have had time for this one in season four. You know, season four just moved so fast, and we went from Londo having put Cartagia on the throne and having buyer's remorse to him and Jakar <laughs> sitting around having a drink uh, after the wedding. And I think that this is an interesting time to have this kind of story. And uh, before we get into the recaps and all this other stuff, I wondered uh, what you all thought about, you know, the placement of this story and whether this was the right time for Londo to have to face himself. Stephen thought it actually felt a little bit out of place. He he thought that it just it seemed like it was the kind of story that would have fit better in season four, um, that it just felt felt sort of dangly here, um, especially since we're starting off the new season. We've got, you know, new cast member and and like all of this stuff has changed. And suddenly it's like record scratch. And I agree with Stephen in, in this case, because suddenly we have this episode that is entirely populated by, you know, characters that we had previously. There's none of the new stuff. Um, you know, we, we've got Sheridan with a goatee and basically that's the only thing that really tethers it to season five. So it 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 for the second episode of a brand new season, it really doesn't seem to do anything to further the season um except you know the whole plot it's yes there's a it's a really important character piece but it seems like weird placement and that you know both steven and i understand the difficulties involved in having a shortened season and then having a full season and you know you do what you got to do but uh but yeah it feels weird i'm trying to decide the, the londo part which is the the main focus and the greater story that does feel mm -hmm. like it's happening a bit later than it should uh, but on the other hand, the subplot with uh, Lanier choosing to yeah. leave, that feels like it's in the right place. It so, does, but I feel and, like that could have been paired with something else. Well, and that's the thing. I'm trying to figure out what it could have been paired with, given that JMS you know, took the opportunity to have Lanier and Veer sort of be touchstones for each other a few times. So, mm -hmm. or at least the, the one time in the bar. So, you know, with, without... Without Veer being like super upset and worried about Londo, I'm not sure what else he might have had to uh, to talk about with Lanier on that sort of thing. So I can see the point, and I'm I'm not sure that I'm as bothered by it as you all are. I am not bothered by it at all. I think that it's <laughs> I think it's kind of perfectly timed. I'm going to have to reserve some of my reasoning for that to spoiler space, but. 
I, I will agree with you, Erica, to the extent that it's something that feels overdue. I don't mm-hmm. think that I, I think that if this episode hadn't existed, I think there would have been something missing from the show. But yeah, I mean, or maybe even coming later would have been OK. I just the second episode, like suddenly we've got all this fancy new stuff. Nope. Nope. Taking it away. Hmm. None of it. OK. But what an actor tour de force. Oh, yeah. No, no arguments there. Yeah, let's uh, let's let's dive in. Um, if you're randomly coming back to B five with this episode, if this is one of your very very favorites, and you and you suddenly saw a Twitter post that said, "Hey, these <laughs> podcasters are talking about my very favorite episode," uh, let's recap four years worth of Babylon Five for you, or at least the relevant bits. Centauri Ambassador and Prime Minister Lando Malari has made a lot of bad choices to increase his station and his people's power. He colluded with the ancient shadows. It led to the death of the Emperor, the near genocide of the rival Narn regime, a madman on the Centauri throne, and a war between the shadows and the Vorlons that threatened to tear the galaxy apart. As things got worse and worse for Centauri Prime, Lando finally took action helping to kill the Emperor, spare the Narn, and restore peace to the galaxy as a founder of the Interstellar Alliance. Good on you, Londo Malari. Great job. Are you a good man? Maybe not. In this episode, <laughs> it's not enough. Londo has a heart attack that puts him on the brink of death, and his conscience is working overtime. As he's visited with visions that put the tough into tough love, he has to decide whether he is truly sorry for what he did or only sorry that it turned out so badly. Meanwhile, Mimbari Ambassador Delin's longtime aide, Lanier, has been carrying a torch for her for too long to be comfortable with the fact that, you know, she's married now. So he's off to the French Foreign Legion. <laughs> so, as Stephen Grimm said on our go-to resource, The Lurker's Guide to Babylon 5, quote, Both Lanier and Londo followed the callings of their hearts in this episode, though Londo's heart was rather more emphatic about it. <laughs> I disagree with that statement. Oh wow! I, I don't think Lanier was following the calling of his heart. I mean, you even had you even had you know Delenn saying something about that, and Sheridan saying, "Well, what if it's not the calling of his heart?" I just don't think it is. I think the calling mm. of his heart is Delenn, and that's just very clear. So, oh, very true. Mm. Yeah, you know, he's running from the calling of his heart. Yeah, oh, exactly. Oh, 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 we're going to have some great conversations about this. But can we start with the a plot? Sure. I, I really insist. do think I do really do think that the title guy is is the a plot of this story. <laughs> uh, the very long night of Londo Malari. This is for the second time after uh, Walkabout, uh, not Walkabout, Shadow Dancing, but it covered uh, Stephen Franklin's Walkabout in uh, Down Below. For the second time in this TV series, we've had a sort of hallucinatory reckoning with one's conscience. Is JMS repeating himself here? Several, several, uh, several questions here. You know, is is this hackneyed or well executed? Is this surreal enough to be a morality play inside uh, Londo's head? Yes. When you just say it, you know, flat out as you did that, you know, this is a you know subconscious reckoning thing. Yes, it sounds like that JMS is repeating himself, but he sets both of the situations into the characters, the cultures, uh, you know, where they come from, that it does not bother me at all. 
Um, Stevens' walkabout came from uh, his roots as a foundationist, whatever the religion was that he came from, the idea that you, you know, you keep going until you meet yourself. Um, and for him, it was more of a search um, for, for himself. And it, you know, it wasn't until he, he got stabbed and, you know, finally it kicks in with the idea of him yelling at himself of what he needs to do to fix his life. Londo's journey is different. Um, we have, it's been well established. The idea of, um, that they dream what their deaths, uh, that Centauri can, uh, prophesize, uh, what's going to happen to them when they die. This is not what Londo's been dreaming about. So, you know, the, the suspicion is that he's actually not going to die right now. Although, um, they do make it clear that, you know, at any time they could, uh, short circuit the prophecy within the show. But with Londo, Stephen didn't have anything to really apologize for. Yes, he'd gone off a path and he needed to get back on. But here, Londo's situation is genuinely him trying to come to terms with the fact that not only has he screwed up, he has taken down millions of lives as a result. And he needs to actually acknowledge that. So to me, they seem very different. Yeah, I feel like Londo has a sort of a larger character arc over the first four seasons than 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 Dr. Franklin does. I mean, True. I feel like Franklin's he's got like a mini arc, you know, the 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 stims and getting off the path and all that kind of stuff, you know, is important and it's great character development and I loved watching him do it, but I feel like what we have going on with Londo is so much larger than that and is it's so much more tied into the whole, you know, good versus evil shadow war thing that that took up a lot of most of what we've seen in the show and yeah, I think having this as sort of the denouement for his character, you know, at least at this point, is is much more of a foundational, <laughs> no pun intended, uh, foundational ah. thing, uh, because just because he's it's so intertwined with with all of the things that have happened, and he's been such a shady character from the beginning, and has has come a lot farther. I don't think I don't think Stephen was ever a shady character. I think, no. like you said, Shannon, he was just sort of, he, he was off the path. So yeah, there are certainly some similarities, but I think that that when you're talking about four years uh, plus a couple episodes of a television show that is dealing with characters that are really treated like actual people who learn and change from from the choices that they make, I don't think it's unreasonable to have two episodes that deal with this sort of thing because that's that's life. You got to deal with with the the crap that has happened before and I'm I'm fine with with do- doing that a couple times in this manner. It's interesting to me that through season 4 we started out with Londo having done a lot of bad stuff and he enters the Centauri court and realizes that he has helped put a madman on the throne and he spends much of the season trying to fix the problems that he helped create and then is the slow climb to him and Jakar getting along there's a rapprochement or just detente detente that's the word that I'm looking for there's detente between them and then they're cordially having a drink while uh, Jakar is perving on Dolin and Sheridan um <laughs> The point of this episode is that Londo never actually apologized to Jakar. I wonder if this that makes this episode feel like a turning point, and do we feel differently about Londo after this episode 
compared to the previous episodes? Or do we know too much about what's coming? I don't remember a lot about what's coming. So I'm going to say I don't actually feel that much different because having a, as you put it, Chip, come to Jesus moment like this, having having like the the epiphany sort of a thing is all well and good, but it doesn't really mean anything until we can see what the actual like ramifications of that are. We did see him, you know, in the real world saying, I'm sorry, Jakar, which was a great moment and an amazing reaction with no mm-hmm. words from Andreas Katsalas. But um, until we go farther and see like, you know, what Londo's actions are from here on in, I'm not going to say that it changes anything for me in the way that I see him, um, except that I, I do think it's I do think it's a nice uh, sort of notification to us that, yes, he actually there's a conscience in there somewhere and and he feels as bad as he looks like he feels sometimes. <laughs> um, so that's it's nice to get a, a look inside his head. But I am not actually changing my viewpoint on him, his his character until I see where things go from here. I, I think I might remember too much. I, I think I might have to hold off my opinion on that for spoiler space. Totally fair. The thing that comes that keeps coming to me in this episode, and, you know, uh, hot take here. I really love this episode quite a bit. <laughs> One of the confrontations between image of Jakar and Londo. Jakar yells at Londo and says, you're not sorry about what you've done. You're only sorry that you got caught. Which is a bit of an overstatement, perhaps, but it gets to the thing that Londo feels really bad about what happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, he felt really bad all the way back in season two when the Centauri were mass driving Narn into oblivion. You know, his face, he looked awful. He was sorry that that happened. He never entirely shows up until the big moment. You know, he shows that he's resisting, you know owning and apologizing why wouldn't he say that he's sorry that's kind of a that that seems like kind of a basic obligation to me but yeah he he feels awful for the role that he played what jakar challenges him on is you didn't do anything until you were forced to he could have said something that might not have stopped Cartagia from whipping Jakar. He could have said something that might not have stopped Rifa from bombing Narn, but he had, as Jakar says, an obligation. Him coming to terms with that is, I think, what makes him say, I'm sorry to Jakar in the end. And that sort of path that he walks is really powerful to me. I think it's some of JMS's best sermonizing in the entire show. Mm-hmm. Which is not to say that Londo hasn't apologized before. He apologized to Garibaldi for voting against Sinclair all the way back in the pilot, The Gathering. And that seemed like a hollow apology. Garibaldi says, if you had known that would have been the outcome, would you have still done it? And Londo says, yes. And for that, I'm truly sorry. You're not truly sorry. Otherwise, you wouldn't have done it. (laughs) Right. And in Geometry of Shadows, he apologizes to Technomage Elric to try to stop him from putting demonic bugs into his computer and things like that. And that's just like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I'm abasing myself before you. Now please make the bad thing stop. This really does feel like his first genuine, meaningful apology. 
Although he's apologizing to make the bad thing stop, and the bad thing is him dying. So, I mean, you could argue that that it's uh, that it's just him apologizing again under duress, and that he's you know fooled himself into thinking that he's genuinely contrite. Or you could, or you could argue that you know, no, his heart wouldn't kick back in unless he was genuinely and truly sorry. <laughs> but I think you could read it either way. <laughs> okay. uh, that's a lot of heart cannon possibility there. <laughs> yes. I, I also really like the contrast between Jakar on the outside and Jakar on the inside. Real Jakar mm-hmm. seems to, thanks to his, you know, increasingly enlightened self, he hasn't like come up to give Londo any hugs lately or anything like that. But he, not being privy to all of this internal drama that Londo's having, you know, he comes to the he comes to the med lab. He mm-hmm. is concerned mm-hmm. about Londo. Jakar on the inside. Oh, my God. <laughs> I, I fell in love with Andreas Katsoulos all over again watching this episode. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, my God. Not just, you know, the way he presents himself as not just Jakar, but, you know, the weight of all of Narn behind him. And then to turn around and and basically turn himself into Kartaja. <laughs> oh, God, that moment was creepy. <laughs> It's too effective. It's too creepy, effective. but, you know, he's sort of, I think Andreas Katsoulis is performing Jakar, performing as Cartagia. He's not, mm-hmm. Andreas Katsoulis is not emulating Wortham Krimmer. I think right. Andreas Katsoulis is playing Jakar, playing Cartagia, which I yeah. think <laughs> is a really skillful performance. Mm-hmm. Layers, so many layers. He's a dinosaur onion. <laughs> and then just you know not only not only that scene but when we come back to to the actual apology and, and londo is you know mouthing the words through uh through the viewing glass or whatever and just the look that katsulis manages to get through all that makeup of just sort of realization and then surprise and you know then acceptance i mean you know he he lets londo know with a look that he has heard him and to me, it looked like that, you know, he was willing to grant the forgiveness. So. I'm not sure I read it that way. To me, it looked more like he just wasn't entirely sure what to do with it. There was so hmm. much emotion and so many different things going across his face that I read it as he needed to leave the room to ruminate on this and, and try hmm. to determine how he's actually going to take it. That's, okay. a, that's a good I saw a realization too. of some sort in there um, that, that I sort of took as the idea that Londo's finally said it, and this means we can go forward um, in some way. Yeah, I thought I, I was sort of reading surprise in that I, I don't know that Jakar ever thought that Londo would come to the point where he would apologize and was sort of overcome at that, you know, su- surprise and realization like, holy crap, he did it. Now I have to now I have to deal with this emotional fallout. So I'm going to go somewhere <laughs> else to do that. David Eagle directs this one, and we've noted that he's good with actors in the past mm-hmm. we have never really sort of gone vehar happy over <laughs> david eagle um and i think i think there were vehar moments in here well uh, it, the, the the dreamscape the surrealism of the dreamscape there is some weird off stuff like the strange rhythm when he is having his fake tarot card reading with delin the body-mounted camera staring close in with a fisheye lens at Londo and things like that. 
it's a very weird rendering of the station, and I think it really works well. Something that leaped out at me was um, a couple of times the transitions from what's actually going on on the station to Londo's dreamscape, like that moment when Stephen First is walking away from talking to Garibaldi or whatever and down the hall, and you're kind of wondering, they're following him an awfully long time, and mm-hmm. you know, he goes through the elevator, and then here comes Londo walking in, and it's just as as First was walking away and and Jurassic is coming in, you know, they just, whether it's lighting, I'm not sure what it is, but they managed to just all of a sudden, hey, we're back in Wonderland. Yeah, lighting. Yeah, they did a real Dutch angle. Like mm-hmm. as soon as as soon as the elevator closes, you get the Dutch angle, and and suddenly, you know, you're like, okay, we're off. I'm off balance, and then sure enough, in comes Lando. Yeah, and then we have that really fascinating little conversation between Sheridan uh, or fake Sheridan and Londo, mm-hmm. and you kind of wish that facial hair could be instantly removed and regrown because uh, <laughs> I in, in hairstyles and everything else because I kind of would have liked to have seen uh, Sheridan in his EA uniform uh, clean shaven but uh, we didn't get that but uh, that was kind of interesting seeing different phases of Sheridan in Londo's head yeah, Stephen Stephen asked me, he's like, we weren't really supposed to understand all of those outfits, are we? Because he's like, I didn't really recognize those last couple ones. And I'm like, um, not really. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, no. I think it's fair that, we're, the, that we should have, we, we've seen the Entelza robes. We've yeah, seen, and I, did we've point, seen, I did point that out, yeah. but Sinclair not on him. Dylan, right. Yeah, mm-hmm. and that's, that, that's quite interesting. Why on earth would Sheridan be wearing Entelza robes? I think, uh, if I recall correctly, past me was still a little bit bitter that Michael O'Hare had gone <laughs> off to be Valen, and uh, and and why on earth? I was okay with Delin wearing those robes, but why is this guy? Why is this guy? Are you just going to completely erase Sinclair from my heart? Come on, JMS. <laughs> three. I was, There's I, always when, three. <laughs> when Stephen and I were talking about it, yeah, I did point out that, like, you know, you have. Sheridan and Delenn, they they share control of the Rangers. So I always thought it was weird that she was wearing the robes and he never did until this dream sequence, which is, yes, weird. But yeah, and Shannon's right, too. We had the, you know, the one who was, the one who is, the one who will be. So that's, I think it makes sense for for all of them. I want to see them in a big pajama party, all of them wearing the same robes. (laughs) Oh. And an interesting conversation. Uh, Londo uh, and presumably the rest of the uh, the movers and shakers at the top of the Interstellar Alliance. Londo knows that Sheridan has a limited amount of time, and Londo himself seems to think that he's got a limited amount of time, unless he turns the prophecy into a metaphor. It's nice moments when characters have parallels like that and are able to discuss them. I like that in my shows. Mm -hmm. I also liked the hint from uh, back with uh, War Without End, uh, Londo claiming that he, you know, ever since he met Sheridan, he's had sort of the feeling that Sheridan would kind of be around at his death. And, well, our flash forwards from War Without End say yes. Mm -hmm. In a matter of speaking. So I'm I'm a really big fan of this this plot line, I think the arguments that Londo has with himself, which is which is this is all about, um, I, I think that they're compelling. I think the message that you know you are a witness, you have a, a responsibility, you have an obligation to do the right thing, even if you don't think it is going to work. 
Um, you've got moral culpability from ha- for what happens if you don't. I think all of that stuff is really important. And like I said at the top, I think it's I think it's a little overdue for Londo, who has possibly been given something more of a pass than you would expect from the other cast members in uh, in this show. You know, why would Delenn call him just annoying after everything that he's done over the years? I think that this was I think that this was a necessary episode. Yeah, I agree. And and as you said earlier, supported by, you know, great performances by the various actors. I mean, of the ones that uh, we haven't mentioned yet that I wrote notes down on, um, Stephen first, um, that that initial scene uh, with Zach and, you know, Londo is ranting and, and, and Vera's behind him, behind him. And Stephen first is doing all kinds of nonverbal acting to, you know, try and signal to Zach is please hold your temper, please hold your temper. Uh, <laughs> that just had me practically laughing. Um, I was also super impressed with Mira Furl in this episode, both um, in mm. the storyline we're going to talk about in a minute, but also when she was um, in the fortune teller role. Um, her her statements could have been hokier or, you know, more overly dramatic, but she found a really good balance. What about you, Erica? Any final thoughts about uh, Thread A, Londo? I actually, I think I kind of want to tie the two together a little bit. Um, we talked just a little bit about uh, David J. Eagle's directing. One thing that I noticed in both, uh, a couple places in both plot lines was his use of silence. I found incredibly effective. We've talked about the scene with, with Delenn and Londo and the, uh, well, fake Delenn and and the tarot card reading. There is no music during that sequence it is, you know, Chip, you, I think you called it awkward. There, I think one of the reasons it feels so awkward and weirdly paced is because there's no music going on in the background. When there's silence, it's actual silence. It is Londo having to sit with, with everything that he's thinking and everything that he's feeling. And it, it, I just found that really effective. And the other moment, which was another Delenn moment where we had complete silence, was um, when Delenn is sitting there talking to Lanier and, you know, saying, when were you going to tell me? And the the line that just gets me is when, you know, he's saying why he wants to leave. And she just says, I know why. There's no music in that entire, like, conversation until the mood is sort of, like, relaxed a little bit at the end. Then you get some some music again. But it seems like the really hard conversations in this episode uh, have no music underneath them. And I think that's fantastic. Hmm. Yeah, well, let's take this opportunity to switch to the B-plot, to Lanier. He ended season four with the all love is unrequited, quoting Ivanova, and Delenn responds that she's wrong, of course. So it's a couple of weeks after the wedding, and somebody feels like a third wheel. Which is really saying something when it's Mimbari culture and three is sacred. I know. That was an amusing little interaction right there between... Oh, that was fabulous. That was fabulous. I love that tiny little, you know, Sheridan, you know, he may have known Delenn for, you know, several years, you know, fallen in love with her, gotten married to her, and yes, he can still put his foot in his mouth. Yep. Whoops. Yeah, Stephen was very sad. Like, at the very beginning of the episode where Delenn's getting the message about having a replacement for Lanier, Stephen was like, don't leave, Lanier! I like him! (laughs) So he's very sad. At the end of the episode, he was consoling himself with the fact that Lanier said that uh, that he would come back and visit and stuff. He's like, he's not gone forever, is he? I'm like, I'm not saying anything. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, he was. He, Stephen was feeling feeling very sad 
um, as was I, because yeah, I like Lanier too. And you know, we've we've seen it coming. He's it, obviously Delenn has as well. And and yeah, it's it's not really a surprise that that he is feeling upset about it. It did come as a surprise that he was just going to take himself completely out of the situation. I think all three of us have similar reactions to storylines, especially in comedies, where the audience knows so much more than the characters and the characters do stupid or self-destructive or hideously awkward things. And we're sitting there going, why don't you have a little bit more Mm self-awareness? This is kind of the opposite in that Delenn and Sheridan and to a certain extent, Lanier, all three of them know what's up. Um, mm-hmm. That Sheridan asks, is it because of me? And Delenn says, I think in part, and he says, I figured this was coming. I don't think we ever really had any scenes other than a, a slightly bitter Lanier in an elevator going, woo-hoo. Um, mm-hmm. I don't believe we ever had any scenes that spelled out Lanier being jealous of Sheridan in Sheridan's presence. But... Here, Delin and Sheridan demonstrate that they're not stupid. And I really appreciate it when my characters are not stupid. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It was an interesting way for Lanier to justify his choice of the Rangers as well. Because, you know, kind of like Delin, that, that would not have been my first thought. Uh, what we have seen of the Rangers is that they are spies, they are soldiers, you know, they, they go and infiltrate and, you know, are ready to lis- risk their lives for everything. And it's not like Lanier's not brave. Um, he is, but as someone who that we have seen as as a priestly figure, a scholar, um, an acolyte, that it did not seem like the first fit. But for him, he thinks he needs to step up and take take Marcus's place, and that was the reason Marcus joined the Rangers to step up and take his brother's place. So I kind of liked that. Mm, I hadn't thought rhythm. of that. Yeah, I, I kind of yep. liked those those choices. That makes yeah, a I lot have... more sense than. I want to go away and better myself so that you will like me more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had that that uh, that echo sort of in my in my notes as well. Although I seem to remember Marcus never really accepting, but sort of kind of realizing the fact that that wasn't a great reason for him to join the Rangers <laughs> was to take his brother's place and just you know doing it out of you know grief and anger and, and, it, well. and, and it just makes me think that <laughs> yep like here we have it's it's a perfect echo because it's linear as I said before I feel like you know running away from the situation and yep taking the place of somebody who took the place of somebody else it's like dominoes yeah yes yeah. so I get linear feeling uncomfortable. He has strong affection and attachment to Delin, and he is never going to get it returned to him to the extent that he wants. It is structurally impossible. So going off and being a ranger for a few years may be the exact right thing to do. But to take that further step to want to better himself in her eyes. Where is that coming from? That seems like an irrational leap, an understandable one. I think people do these sorts of irrational things all the time, but that feels a little new to me. Um, He's always been such a sort of like 
a fresh faced like you know he's he, she's the mentor he's the mentee and i think that he's learned a lot over the course of these 4 years but i think this is another case of him being young and inexperienced um I, and certainly in the ways of love. And, and I think you're right, Chip, that that people do that sort of thing all the time. Like, you know, I want to make myself more like the person that I think you would want, you know, to see, which, mm-hmm. again, not a great motivation for doing something, but very realistic. So. So, yeah, yeah I'm I, I, I'm fine I, with it. But yeah, I, I can't make up my mind whether he's looking at it as this is something that, you know, Delenn would not expect from me. I am pushing myself, I am pushing my boundaries, and she will admire that. Or the fact that if he becomes a ranger, well, she's still Entelza. And, you know, she will be right there at times to witness, once he is fully a ranger, um, the kind of growth that he thinks she wants now that she's not just an ambassador. He, she's not just a member of the religious caste. She is the leader of this group. So I don't know. Right. And but, maybe there's part of it, too, that, you know, she she's married a soldier and, mm-hmm. you know, Rangers, not soldiers. I'm not saying that, but they definitely are more soldiery than your Military, average. Yeah. yeah. Than your average, say, you know, re- the religious caste Mimbari fellow. So there might be a hint of that, too. So is he actually trying to win her away from Sheridan? I don't think he would let himself go that far in his mind he wouldn't admit because, it to himself yeah because even he wants, if that is he, his motivation he wouldn't admit he, it yeah he wants her to be happy but i would suspect that deep down inside that's the dream you know and that's the thing that just just sort of kills me is that if you look at the different reactions that sheridan and delin have to this situation delin's is more idealistic it's more for one of a better word minbari you know, three is everything. I don't think she's suggesting that she wants to be able to set up housekeeping with Sheridan and Lanier. I think that that would lead to bloodshed. But um, she doesn't want to lose this very, very valuable friend that she has been able to lead uh, for the long time. Right. It's it's sort of like Sheridan and Delin have different ideas about the importance of boundaries and how mm-hmm. to how to work out complex relationships. Uh, Sheridan's being kind of a st- somewhat stereotypically male slash human possessive spouse here. You know, he's, you know, he 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 cares about Lanier. He he he's the one who expresses concern that he's running away from a bad situation. But you see, in the end, when um, Lanier uh, goes off with the Rangers, and mm-hmm. Sheridan has kept his careful distance but when he comes back you know his arms instantly around delin you know he's sort of bringing her back in the fold you know uh to quote third space mine 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 that's not that bad yeah. not that bad but but, but it, it's subtle but it's there it's subtle but it's there uh delin does not want to see lanier do this she doesn't want to see lanier go she wants to believe that this can all be made to work, even though she will never look at Lanier the way Lanier wants her to. Mm-hmm. Yes, Stephen was actually a little bit, I don't know if disturbed is the right word, but he very much noticed uh, Sheridan sort of floating through this episode in a way that his reactions to everything um, were a little bit like, huh, well, that's the thing that's happening. Like, oh, there goes Lanier. Oh. Londo's really sick, like, which I have to agree. He didn't seem emotionally mm-hmm. invested in anything. And I don't know if that was uh, 
a conscious choice on his part, on the direction's part, if they were trying to just sort of like, you know, leave the emotional heavy lifting for the other characters who were more directly affected. But it really did sort of stand out to me like he just he I don't know, maybe he's maybe he's the the bureaucrat right now and he's just got his his head is filled with red tape at the moment and he's just very busy and can't be bothered to feel things that's, i don't know you know that's exactly the thought that i was having as you were talking you know he's he's sort of a, a bit of presidential distance mm-hmm. that that sounds interesting you know sheridan's most compelling stuff in this episode is when it's not sheridan you know it's bruce boxleitner playing that part of uh londo's uh, subconscious or whatever mm mm-hmm. mhm I will ask you, Erica, to distill any other pieces uh, from the control group's uh, recollections of this episode. Uh, what did uh, somebody who's never seen Babylon 5 before <laughs> think of the very long night of Londo Malari? Uh, well, one thing he noticed uh, right off the bat in the opening credits was just, a, um, or maybe it was the opening credits or right after it. Anyway, it's early in my notes. Is just that Jakar still has the the robo eye, which he mm-hmm. really appreciated as a, as a good detail. Um, uh, continuity in the show is just great so he liked mm-hmm. that um it ended and and i was like what did you think and steven said that was a character piece i liked it he thought it was he thought it was well done he liked that it sort of closes that whole element of of londo's arc with him feeling you know the guilt and bad about all that stuff he did so steven is now curious to see what happens to him now is he going to become emperor don't tell me is basically <laughs> what he said um and and yeah, so he's he's still on board with uh, with Babylon Five and, and season five. He was so excited to watch Babylon Five. Like yesterday, I got home from work and he's like, oh, "We get to watch Babylon Five tonight." <laughs> I'm so excited. <laughs> like you're just it's like a kid in a candy store. It is great. So yeah, he's he's still fully on board. Just a couple of random things that uh, didn't find a place to mention earlier. I really like some of the well thought out things. Uh, Londo's physiology. You know, the idea that the Centauri have these two hearts with these two different um, functions. We and saw his why... private Barts. And that, mm-hmm. yes. The, yeah, the, the prosthetics <laughs> showing um, what we know of Centauri physiology. <laughs> um, things like that. Um, I also, and the fact that, you know, with, with these two hearts, that the heartbeat, when we have the heartbeat going on in Medlab, when we have the heartbeat going on in Londo's dreamscape, it's this weird triple rhythm that, you know, for us makes things feel a little more weird, but apparently that's what a Centauri heartbeat sounds like. So um, I really liked attention to detail like that. Um, I also liked seeing Franklin sort of in his element again as he's, you know, getting Londo in and getting everything prepped and, you know, getting his answers from Veer and then getting Veer out of there so he can do his job. Uh, I really liked, even though we didn't see it a lot, I liked uh, Franklin in this episode. And we didn't mention uh, the callback uh, with Veer and Lanier meeting in the bar again. That goes back to uh, the fall of night, uh, where apparently they you know, would meet on a regular basis. Uh, and this time we get the joke about uh, the Shirley Temple, which is actually a drink <laughs> that, that Lanier could have, you know, mm-hmm. um, unlike most other uh, beverages from Earth. Um, and the the sort of underlying play, um, Shirley Temple is best known for being a child actress, but in her adult years, she was ambassador to several different countries. Ha ha. Oh, yeah, so. of course. I didn't even put that together. <laughs> yeah. Um, I also liked that we got the full story of Londo's first wife, since there had been a mention somewhere in the show, if I remember correctly, or in the tie-in media, um, that the only three wives we saw in the one episode 
um, didn't account for some fourth. And now we find out, yeah, Londo had a teenage fling and, and got married and had to divorce her. So. Yep. It, it is the good a, stuff in this up. It is a remarkably continuity-heavy episode. Yeah, there was the callback to um, Jakar mentioning the experience with the dust when he was able to attack Londo telepathically. Um, right. Yeah, uh, just all kinds of all kinds of bits. Yeah, it does get a little metaphysical. I mean, giving several explanations, potential explanations for why Londo is encountering Jakar in this way. And seeing and Sheridan, yeah, and seeing the, the, Sheridan in a way that points to his history, but possibly also to his future, wearing clothes that he has never worn before, things like that. Um, B five doesn't go metaphysical very often. This is possibly even the first time, you know, telepathy aside. Um, it's kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. And I like the, the the idea of turn around because, you know, here I am in, scrib- scribbling in my notes. Does turn around mean go back? Does turn around mean change course? You know, what is it that Londo can't bear to turn around and look at? And it's, well, his own actions, his own past leading him to this point. Right. And I do love how it before... You know, he's told to turn around for a few times, a few times before he finally does. And we as the audience are let in on the fact that that's Jakar waiting for him and he resists until the last minute. And I think that's a good payoff. Mm-hmm. Another little detail, uh, going back to uh, Lanier and Veer, uh, Veer offering the Mimbari greeting uh, gesture uh, as they're saying goodbye to each other, and Lanier just stands there because he kind of knows that's not all Lanier wa- that's not all Veer wants to do, and then he lets Veer go in for the hug. I liked that. Yeah. Well, that was the very long night of Londo Malari. We're going to go into the very long night of Londo Malari after dark, uh, after we go to the, <laughs> through the jump gate and uh, talk about spoilery stuff. Uh, but we will next time on episode 92 talk about the Paragon of Animals. We're back to our metaphorical titles. <laughs> uh, we knew we, they had to come back eventually. Of course. We will be on social media at B5 Audio Guide. We will be at B5AudioGuide.com with our spoilery and non-spoilery discussion threads if you want to talk about this episode. And we love you to continue the conversation there. But for now, it's time to hop into a jump gate and go off to the Mimbari homeworld for ranger training. Spoilers in just a moment. And we're back. Woo. (laughs) Okay, so... The thing that I wanted to finish uh, my thought about with regard to the timing of this episode and uh, whether it should have happened earlier or whatever, maybe it should have happened earlier, but it sure as heck shouldn't have gone any later because we're going to have a buddy arc, you know, good cop, bad cop, Londo and Jakar uh, going (laughs) off and doing fun things this season. And without this episode, I don't know that I would have bought it. True. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, so that's why that's why I that's why I'm satisfied with the placement of this episode. Um, otherwise, mm-hmm. it, without it, you don't have a moment of Londo apologizing to Jakar and Jakar believing it. It's it, they would have just papered it papered it over. Yeah. But yeah, but I mean, that, in the end, I'm fine. I'm fine with it. But I, I still think it feels a little bit weird. But but you're right. There's not 
like a there's no good solution to put it someplace else short of having a longer fourth season to be able to squeeze it in there. Yeah, or some sort of incident happening in the course of the uh, show that would have put Londo in peril. I mean, mm-hmm. it is kind of a convenient heart attack, but yeah, <laughs> but I think it needed to happen for the for the story's sake. Will we, as you recall, will we think of Londo as a good man from here on out for the rest of the season? I wasn't lying when I said I kind of forgot. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, based on what I remember, uh, mainly the Londo's decision to take on the keeper in order to you know keep sort of keep the Drock at bay, um, so that they won't just sort of kill all Centauri. That sort of leads me to think that you know this was the beginning of Londo of Londo's redemption. But at the same time, like he, even with the keeper on, you know, he gets to the point where he learns to get, you know, drunk enough to to Mm -hmm. be able to shut it down. And he still gives a keeper to Sheridan and Delenn for their son. Like, you know, that's that is a thing he probably could have avoided if he would have been willing to sacrifice more. Yeah, I mean, he tries to avoid it in that episode. He uh, he asks if uh, there's alcohol in the room, and uh, and Sheridan responds, "Oh no, no, it's dangerous for Mimbari, so don't we we don't keep any here." So the keeper makes him hand over the mm-hmm. urn. I think, uh, if if I recall that episode correctly, but mm-hmm. but we can talk more about it when that episode yeah. comes because I don't remember it super clearly either. Yeah, yeah, but then on the other hand, we've got the line in. Um... In a war without end, you know, Delenn says our son is safe. So, you know, at some point, my understanding was Londo did something to um, help sort of head that off. And that is actually covered in tie-in media and uh, mm-hmm. the Centauri Prime novels written by Peter David, who, if you are listening to this in real time as we record it, Eric and I will be interviewing at Long Island Who about his Babylon 5 episodes and his uh, tie-in work. So look forward to that. We may hey. even be able to record it as an extra. Who knows? Um, going back to uh, Lanier, you know, uh, and the question of, you know, did he make a sort of an unnatural leap in his behavior from uh, the end of uh, season four to this episode? Uh, we keep checking in on, we know we know how this is going to end for Lanier and Sheridan mm-hmm. and Delenn. Um, does this help us get there believably? I guess it's a believable step, a logical step, you know, that that Lanier's first inclination when he realizes that there's just no way he's going to work around this is to try and remove himself from the situation. I mean, you know, if you've got somebody that you are desperately in love with, um, that has, you know, not returned that, uh, has gone off and married somebody else, I mean, it's a natural inclination you know, if you're still feeling that strongly is to avoid, is to step back, to find a way to um, help lessen the hurt by making it less constant. Yep. Yeah, I actually found it kind of hard to talk about this, that the B plot of the story in non-spoiler space, because my feelings on it are so colored by knowing where it ends up. I think the first time that I watched it, I was just brokenhearted for Linear and didn't even think about the fact that that he was that his motivations are somewhat sketchy in you know trying to turn himself into somebody that she would love more like that that right there mm-hmm. like huge icky 
gross red flag. Um, but at the time, the first time I saw it, that didn't occur to me. I was just very, very sad for him. And it was like, you go take care of yourself, little man. Um, I don't feel quite that strongly that way now. Yeah. yeah and I, and it make I, I'm I'm sort of coming around to the point and I am willing to willing to have the show prove prove me wrong but I'm coming around to the point that I was more discomfited by what Lanier does in the end because I wasn't paying as close attention to the build up. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yep. That me too. That's fair. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think this was by and large, really subtly done for a long time. Um, mm-hmm. And that it's not until these last few episodes as, as Sheridan and Delenn not only get, get to the point of engagement and then marriage um, is when when you realize, you know, just what a position uh, Lanier has found himself in and let himself get into uh, by indulging, uh, you know, letting himself fall in love with his mentor. Sheridan's costume changes again. Uh, we can we can be a little more specific now that yes, he mm-hmm. will be in Tilsa someday, and he'll be wearing those robes. Uh, he w- he was fitted for those robes for the season four slash season five finale. Uh, <laughs> so he's not just wearing uh he's not just wearing Michael O'Hare's get up. Uh, you know he's wearing he's wearing what he wore uh, for Sleeping in Light. Uh, but you know he will be in Tilsa someday. He and Delenn are basically going to switch jobs and she's going to become the president and he is going to become Ranger One. Uh, and uh, it's pretty clear that that, even though he doesn't actually wear it, you know, it's that that white shroud mm-hmm. strikes me as a burial shroud kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And, and then he turns into a glowing ball of light, which is what you do when you're, you know, bodily assumed into heaven, I assume. Yep, yep, yeah. yep. Or, you know, plucked up by uh, pre-Vorlon. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But between that and sort of the external reality of the show and the sort of future timeline of the show being inserted into Londo's subconscious, this is kind of weird, but bear with me here. Between Sheridan, the glimpses of future Sheridan, and the questions that JMS sets up in the script of just what is Jakar doing in Londo's head? Is he a delusion? Is he a representation of his conscience? Is he a vestige of the uh, psychic contact that they had in Dust to Dust? You know, bear with me, but this episode makes me feel a little bit better about Neil Gaiman's episode, Day of the Dead, coming up, which Hmm. is completely weird and magic realistic and not at all congruent with the the kind of (laughs) hard science fiction that we've had in Babylon 5 up to this point. It's a weird way to look at it, but Mm -hmm. Day of the Dead is going to be a weird-ass show compared to what we've had. (laughs) Yeah. I love it, though. I, I, I agree. Like, I like that you pointed that out because it makes me feel a little better about it, too. The, the Londo dream bits, though, about like Sheridan's outfits, I feel like because they have already established that Centauri can see their death, that's that's seeing the future that's been established. Uh, we have uh, Centauri who are able to, you know, make predictions. I can't oh, remember right. her name. That's right. But, uh, you know, yeah. it's that is that is a thing that that is just true to the Centauri people. So I'm. 
I feel like I was kind of fine with all of that. And then the Jakar thing can be just written off entirely as just a manifestation of his his conscience, because the the Jakar in his head never does or says anything, to my knowledge, that that Londo couldn't have already known, you know, himself. So that's true. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so like I'm I'm still going to clutch at that like the tiny straw that it is, uh, that you, as you <laughs> described, to help make me feel better about the weirdness of Day of the Dead. But uh, but I, I I'm not sure that it, it uh, holds out as much as I would like it to. So that was the very long night of Londo Malari, all 45 minutes of it. <laughs> so next time the Paragon of Animals the. Uh, Interstellar Alliance gets in a little deeper with the telepaths, a little more hair for Byron, and uh, <laughs> we, we start really getting into the telepath arc, which is the thing that, if I'm, if I'm increasingly okay with the Lanier arc, that means that it's the telepath arc that is getting sort of the side-eye stuff going on, and we're just mm-hmm. waiting for the we're waiting for it to get bad and maybe it won't get bad. Maybe everything will be okay. Yeah. I feel like there's so much like there's suspense involved with season five, not because I'm waiting to see what's going to happen, but because I'm waiting to see how I'm going to react to it happening this time Mm -hmm. around. Exactly. Because received fan wisdom is a thing. And Mm -hmm. we, and, and even though we've seen this show for ourselves, We've also been marinating in almost 20 years worth of people talking about this thing. Yep. There's no Indeed. way to escape that and erase that from, from the way it affects affects your mind. Except to go in fresh and watch it again with a control yeah. group next to you. After spending four years pulling it apart. Yep. yep. <laughs> exactly. That helps. Yeah. Well, we will pull apart the Paragon of Animals next time on the Audio Guide to Babylon 5. That'll be episode 92. Until then, this is Chip and Durham. Erica in Edmonton. And Shannon in Durham. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you. And we'll talk to you next time. We can't see you. It's a podcast. It's a podcast.